you are now listening to an exclusive interview only on uclaradio.com. Hello, everyone. We're back. Uh, you're listening to Go Fish on UCLA Radio. That's fish with a PH, as in fishing scam. I'm DJ Indecisive. And I'm DJ Daydream. And as we mentioned earlier, we have a guest on, uh, Dr. Diana Asher. Yeah, we're super, super excited to have her. She's the director of the Information Studies Research Lab at UCLA, um, as well as being a partner at Stratelligence and a co-founder of the Information Ethics and Equity Institute. She got her PhD at UCLA in the Department of Information Studies, which is a department that I didn't know very much about, but it tends to cover information ethics, which includes the effect of technology on society and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite class was this one called Internet and Society, and there are other ones about information and power and one on digital communities that I also took. Um, so she got her PhD in that department, as well as an MBA at Claremont Graduate University and Duke for her undergraduate in public policy. And her research is focused on data ethics and the effects of technology on society. So welcome, Dr. Asher. Happy to be here. We have a few things we wanted to talk about. The way that the interview is going to go is we're probably going to start by talking about her research, which is on Twitter and the alt-right. And um, she did some network analysis on neo-Nazi hate speech, which I'm really interested to hear about. And then later on, we'll get into information intake and how to balance being informed without being overwhelmed and how, as students, we can help ourselves. So I guess starting with that research, do you mind talking about it and what your findings were, why you studied it, that kind of thing? Sure. I think the crux of this research looks at assumptions about anonymity on the Internet. And we should first distinguish between anonymity and pseudonymity. When you're on Twitter, you have a handle. That handle could be your name or it could be a persona that you devise for yourself in that network. And folks tend to think that what you do in social media networks online is fairly removed from the real world and that you're protected, that you have some anonymous freedom there. However, we know that you're never really anonymous online and folks can re-identify your information and combine the information from the social media network with some other database or some other source of information and figure out exactly where you are, what your habits are, and target you if they want to. So we were looking at a group of neo-Nazis in Southern California who had blanketed UCLA's campus with, you know, trolling material and were targeting folks online, including some of our professors here in the Department of Information Studies. Wow. Um, so it gave us an opportunity to look at those assumptions of anonymity and to kind of figure out why trolls are so successful in making life difficult for vulnerable populations online. Right. Such an interesting thing to focus on because I love how it really affects real populations too. And I know 
that it mentioned on your website that you also did this during the 2016 presidential election. And I know there were just amazing repercussions of trolls at that time. And it shows that they can make real world differences. It's unbelievable. Oh, yes. I mean, we have a we, we've had outcomes of elections determined by misinformation campaigns. And it took a lot of people by surprise. But that shows both the reach of social media and how it influences news and how misinformation can come under the guise of trusted news sites. And it also shows how vulnerable populations don't have the technical know-how to discern easily between misinformation and information that's reported authentically as news, whereas organized groups such as neo-Nazis tend to have a high degree of technical capability. And so they are protected by the pseudonymity of the platforms. And they've got the technical ability to really target folks and and attack them, both online and in the real world. Then when we have the type of information practices that President Trump has employed since 2016, where he retweets content that was provided by neo-Nazi groups, he ends up emboldening these same organizations so that folks are desensitized to the severity of their threats. And through social proof, folks tend to lash out more caustically against vulnerable groups in response. I think it's a perfect transition to some of the other questions that we had about making sure that it's an information literate population, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I think sure. our next question is, so in your research, I'm sure you have to sift through the massive, gigantic amounts of information present on the internet. So what's what's your personal news intake? And, you know, to ensure you're getting the best, most correct, accurate information. And uh, how do you define what sort of news sources and information is the best information? Those are great questions, and I hope that they're questions that UCLA students will ask themselves because it's very easy to join a couple networks and read your feed and isolate yourself within what we call a filter bubble. Um, it's a silo of information that all tends to be about the same. So if you and your friends are birds of a feather and you listen to the same news and you get your perspective on issues, mm -hmm. all from the same sources, how are you going to challenge and think critically about those issues? What I tend to do is I follow news organizations that I think are top-notch, like Bloomberg, where I used to work, and I know the editorial staff there, and I know what their mission is, mm -hmm. versus some other networks that have a different mission. And I try to follow all of them and look for the gaps and the different approaches that they take to telling a story because these things are multifaceted and it's our responsibility as citizens to interrogate those perspectives and then form our own opinion yeah. based on our own values. I guess that my question following that up is, how do you handle the weight of trying to stay informed with all these different editorial sources without becoming overwhelmed by all of that information? Well, 
if I had the answer to that, I'd be a very rich woman. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think you have to look at the long term. So much of the information that we receive is geared towards short-term decision-making. And I'm a long-term overarching thinker. I like to see how things are going to affect populations and infrastructures, not just today and tomorrow, but 20 years from now. And once you get a little age under your belt and you can start thinking about cycles of information and cycles of behavior, you start to see patterns. And my mother always likes to say the pendulum always swings. So people will go very, very extreme in one direction, be very outraged about some issue, and then the pendulum tends to swing back to the other side. And the truth or the more balanced combination of perspectives tends to be somewhere in the middle. And I think understanding that holistic view will help people kind of temper the more extreme views and take in information from extreme views and from middle-of-the-road views, but kind of contextualize them and then apply their own value system to assess that information and decide what merits taking action and what doesn't. How do you assess the quality of information? Like politically, it seems like both sides believe that the facts are on their side. So how can one be sure? Well, yes, both sides always believe their own facts. And then, like I said, you have to contextualize it. So you have to understand why would someone say these things that, that appear to be counter to what I believe? What, what are those motivations? And think about the values that that source espouses and think about the values that other sources espouse and see where you fit in that spectrum of belief. For example, if you listen to, I don't know, do you get your news from Facebook? I'm not on Facebook personally very often, but... Uh, I wouldn't say I get my news off of Facebook. I, I don't know. I have this mobile app called Flipboard. Where that uh-huh. like sort of collates news articles from all kinds of sources, like CNN or NBC, you know, AP, yes. all that. And uh, I used to beta test for Flipboard. Oh, really? Back in the day, yeah. No, it's great. Yeah, I really um, love it. I love the UI as well. I do too. It's what's nice about sites like that, and Feedly is another one that I think does a very good job of letting the user expose him or herself to different opinions, but it's still branded where these news stories are coming from. Mm-hmm. And it, I just think it's really wise to get the information from multiple sources and to understand if there's a group of people who have values that are different from yours, you better know what they're up to, right? Yeah. And how they interpret events. And it also will give you better insight into how to communicate across divisions because you'll understand the motivation for why a tax is so upsetting to a particular group of people and so encouraging to another. And you don't have to have an opinion on that. You can just see why it would be helpful to this group and harmful to that group and try to figure out 
how you're going to navigate in between them. I would say, you know, in terms of becoming overwhelmed, and the past two years, I think, have been extraordinary in the amount, just the onslaught of news and, you know, the rise in depression and the difficult wrestling with these outcomes and not quite understanding how news affects our day-to-day. And I think it's really important to be able to turn off the news. Mm. And I'm a news junkie, okay? (laughs) I always have the news on. Multiple stations checking feeds from lots of different sources. And sometimes you have to turn it off and think about the issues that you're going to take action on that week and why you're taking those actions and just kind of look inward and reaffirm the values that are important to you. And the news is going to be there when you turn it back on. Allow yourself that respite. Focus on what you're trying to do in the short, medium, and long term and see how that plays out because the news cycle will continue and continue and continue. Yeah. Um, I think that's uh, a wonderful segue into our next question, which is what kind of actions can students take, you know, college students, high school students, whatever, what kind of actions can they take to help themselves or the world and, you know, help themselves understand all the onslaught of news and information? And make a difference, too. Mm -hmm. Sure. So just off the top of my head, I can think of a couple things that students can do locally to make a difference and to be more information literate. One is to take one of our undergraduate courses here in the Department of Information Studies. That course, Internet and Society, that you took is fantastic first introduction to all of the dynamics involved with the innovative technology of the Internet and how that plays out in social situations. There's also one called, I think it's Information and Power or Internet and Power. That's an excellent course as well. And if you're not looking to take a whole course, come and check out our colloquia. We have speakers from the field who talk about all of these issues and provide suggestions on how to navigate in an increasingly networked world. In terms of things you can do on a smaller scale, just daily, check yourself when you feel really strongly about an issue. Make sure that you're thinking about how someone who doesn't have the same background as you do might feel about those issues. It's it's an act of self-reflection, and it will help you discuss with others these important issues that are going to shape your career, shape your social life, and shape your your experience over time. So understanding how others see the world is very important. So what I would suggest is make sure you're having intellectual discussions with your friends. And that sounds a little cheesy nerdy, but (laughs) you'll look back on those conversations and know that you've gotten some different perspectives and just been exposed to how other people take news and contextualize it based on their own backgrounds. There's nothing better than learning from your peers where your differences are and why they why they have arisen and if you can respect that and agree to disagree but learn from one another that's why you're in college that's the whole point 
think that's some fantastic advice. Absolutely. First off, I just can't recommend that class, Internet and Society, highly enough. It has totally changed my professional direction and passions as a whole. I couldn't be more pleased to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I am so glad. Also, I wanted to ask about something that you founded called the Information Ethics and Equity Institute. Could you talk about the organization, what it focuses on, and why it's important? Sure. So we call it IEEI, the Information Ethics and Equity Institute, is designed to provide training for data and information workers so that they can contextualize information and news in ways that are beneficial for them in their careers. Um, So cool. It's a way of extending the education that we all teach in universities into the corporate world. So big tech companies that are dealing with very complex anonymity, pseudonymity issues need to train their people to think about all of these issues and how their decisions either provide access or prevent access to information for different populations. So there's been a lot of discussion lately about algorithmic sensationalism, where news organizations have shifted from human decision-making about stories and, and headline writing and social media interaction and shifted instead to algorithmic decision-making. And this was the focus of my dissertation research What we find is that, of course, the more sensationalist outcomes of these algorithms get retweeted and and shared more frequently in social media networks. Mm -hmm. And that gives kind of a skewed perspective of what people really think, because it's more the derogatory terms and the things that skew negative and are confrontational um, that get the media attention. And I knew we had arrived at that place when the local news would lead off the hour talking about what's trending on Twitter. And I don't, I personally am not comfortable with what's trending on Twitter being the litmus test for what's important in our society. Mm-hmm. So what we do with IEEI is we provide custom training programs so that not just folks who are customers of these big organizations, but also the programmers who, you know, maybe went to school and had an engineering-focused curriculum, get to have some of the exposure to the liberal arts and more cultural sensitivity and just a knowledge of other perspectives that can then contribute to how these algorithms are written. So, I work with the Enterprise Data Management Council, building a framework that will now include data ethics at all levels of the organization. So it's a a broadening of the context for people whose programming is creating access or denying access to various types of information for different populations. Interesting. One of my questions coming into this had been, when you're looking at information intake and what is important to know, I was wondering what you trusted more. Would you trust an editor or a curator or like an algorithm or something that's generating based on what the masses think is important 
and if a curator, who would that be? But I really appreciate that you've basically answered that question throughout this interview. I've learned a lot. Well, who would you trust more? I'm curious. <laughs> I think that going in, I was really torn because I think that having an editor, I think that it just makes me really wonder who that editor would be and what their credentials are. But I think that the answer to that is just someone who's educated and very aware of all sides and making sure that you have like marginalized people speaking their own stories and making it more of an editor compared to letting the masses kind of run themselves. And I think mm -hmm. that, of course, democracy is important. Um, I'm not trying to say that you do need one person to affect everything. And I'm sure it's some sort of balance, too, between being aware of what the masses are talking about and what they do think is important, but also making mm -hmm. sure that you're paying attention to, for example, the New York Times. Like, I really do trust them and I trust their background and I trust their ability to inform the public. Mm -hmm. And I think that an editor and a curator, in my mind, they could have the same role, right? They both are supposed to understand the context, understand all of the different perspectives and value judgments and competing outcomes, and then present to the consumer a balanced view, right? Right. So whether whether you have somebody who's curating, if they're actively curating rather than passively just signing up for feeds, right? That yeah. curator, the more they understand about the broad context, the more effective they're going to be. And it's the same thing with an editor. It's just a different, it's in a different role, I suppose, but I see those on par. Mm -hmm. Algorithms are great but they only reflect the value system of the people who create them. And if those folks creating algorithms don't have that type of acculturated context, then you can't ask them to provide a balanced outcome from an algorithm, right? Yeah, wow. Yeah, well, that about wraps up this interview. Thank you so much again for calling in. We yeah, that really, really gave us a lot to sit with. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. A real pleasure. And yeah, that wraps up the show as well. Is Next. there a way that if somebody's interested in contacting you, do you have a something you'd prefer for them to follow, like a Twitter or come into the lab, something like that? Sure, both of those. Diana Asher is my Twitter handle. There's no anonymity there. <laughs> and um the IS Lab is located in the northernmost building on campus, um, the GSEIS building on the first floor. Come in anytime. I'm always here and always interested to see what problems students are trying to solve and see how I can be a resource. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We will talk with you next week as well. We will have another interview, actually. Yes. Stay tuned to find out who it is. I just want to tell them. Do you mind? Okay. <laughs> I don't want to ruin your surprise. We're <laughs> going to have Dr. Leonard Kleinrock in. So excited to speak with him as well. His lab was the one that sent the first internet message. So it's going to be a show more about history and the physicality of what is the internet besides this ethereal void. So definitely tune in next week. Yeah, we're excited. If you want to hear interview. this interview again or if you tune in halfway, we're going to have it posted to... 
first off, our SoundCloud, which is GoFish on UCLRadio.com. Um, that's what the SoundCloud is called. Also, you can look up bit.ly slash GoFishing, and I'll have it posted there, as well as UCLA Radio's podcasting platforms like iTunes Podcasting. Make yeah. sure to tune in. All right. Have a nice day.